1 Kings, the 19th chapter, and because the sound guys always require a title, my thought or title or subject day is going to be double or nothing, double or nothing. How many have ever been involved in a double or nothing bet, double, double or nothing? I caught up on the uh, last episodes of Duck Dynasty, and uh, I was watching. They, they set some, some, some cans up, three cans up. They got back a ways and took a, a hardball, and uh, they were trying to knock the cans over, and they were betting a dollar. If you didn't knock the cans over, you had to pay a dollar. So Uncle Cy, he missed it the first time, and he said double or nothing, and he missed it the second time, and then he said triple or nothing, and so they got kind of an expensive venture as he was not knocking the cans over. Uh, by the way, I mourn for all the Tennessee fans in the building. I mourn for you. It was a sad day. But how about that Alabama? How about that Alabama? I will tell you what. I, I would love to see the Bulldogs and Roll Tide play in the, in the, in the wouldn't that, would that not be an incredible a lot of fun, though. It's fun to be a part. It's, it was even more fun to sit at home and watch it drinking tea, coffee, not out there in the cold weather, all the beer slinging all over you and all the people's attitude crowded. It's always nice to sit at home and watch it. You can stop and rewind. You saw some great plays, but it was a, it was a uh, terrible game for 10. There's no nice way to – I mean, you're bad, you're bad. It really was a bad – but we are believing that they are going to get better. How many believes are going to get better? My team is the Dallas Cowboys, and they never win, and they have all the money in the world. So sometimes it's not about money. Sometimes it's just about chemistry. My thought this morning, double or nothing, if you'll go with me to 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, and the 21st verse, and I will not be lengthy today as I'm preparing for half the church to come to the house and things that Pastor Ron has given me that honey-do list. We want to make sure and do that. So he, Elijah, departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was playing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elisha passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he, Elisha, left the oxen and ran unto Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow thee. Look at the honor Elisha places upon his parents. And he said unto him, go back again, for what have I done to thee? What a question. Elisha is about to be anointed with a, a, double, a double portion, and the man of God just walks up while he's working. And uh, the man of God knew where he was. Most guys in the middle of the day will be working. Hello, supporting the family. And Elijah casts his mantle upon Elisha, and uh, Elisha asks for permission to go and kiss his parents goodbye. Elijah gives him that permission in verse 21 and returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Look at somebody and say, they feasted. Then he arose, Elijah, and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Several years ago, actually a hundred years ago, there were a group of missionaries that committed themselves to, and the only way to describe it is to tell the story, but they committed themselves to a coffin. When doors would open for them to go to the mission field, they would buy a one-way ticket, and they would pack everything that they needed on their, on their journey, everything that they would have the rest of their life, they would pack into a coffin, and then they'd, be, they'd set sail for the country or the providence that they were going to be a missionary. In other words, they knew when they left, they kissed everybody goodbye. They knew they weren't coming back. And there was a, there was a missionary, and his name, let me make sure I wrote his name down, A-W-M-I-L-N-E, however you would pronounce that. This missionary decided that he was going to go to an island in the Pacific. This island was a head-hunting island. And every missionary that ever had gone to this island had lost his life. But this missionary bought a one-way ticket, packed everything he owned into this coffin, sailed to this place in the Pacific, and there he lived 35 years with favor and honor. The villagers loved him. They did not kill him. They did not assassinate him. And when he died, they took his coffin, and they buried it right in the middle of the village, and they wrote down, this epitaph 35 years later 
When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. What an epitaph. What a legacy. What will people say about you a hundred years from now? Here are a hundred years later. When he came, there was only darkness. When he left, there was only light. I remember several years ago, we did a major production based upon the song, We Will Abandon It All for the Sake of the Call. I don't know if you remember that particular uh, drama or not. A few of us probably did, but it was incredible. It was powerful. There were several involved in it. And we kind of walk through the life of the disciples. We do the illustrated Lord's Supper here every year, and we let you know what happened to the disciples, where they went, what God did with them. But for that particular thought, we will abandon all for the sake of the call. Let me tell you what happened to the 11 disciples after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. James the Greater was thrust, thrust through with the sword. Thomas, doubting Thomas, was pierced with a sword, tortured with red-hot plates, and then burned alive in India. Philip was tortured, then crucified, and while he was on the cross dying, he preached his last gospel message and gave an invitation to Christ. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was beat to death. James was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. It didn't kill him. He survived, and they clubbed him to death. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Syria. James Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks in Mesopotamia. I can't even read my own writing. Matthews, who replaced Judas, Judas, was stoned to death, stoned and then beheaded. Peter and his wife were crucified upside down. John the Beloved was boiled in oil, did not die, so he was placed on the Isle of Patmos for the rest of his life. Jesus told them in James 9 and 23 to take up your cross daily and follow me. I'm reading a book entitled Not a Fan, and the whole particular thought of that book is, are you a fan or are you a follower? Are you playing it safe? Are you charging hell with the, with the squirt gun? The disciples did not play it safe. The disciples went where they knew they would probably lose their life, and they did. And he told them, if they hated me, they'll hate you even more. It just kind of goes with the territory, kind of goes with the call. It's scary today when we see how many buildings in this city actually have the name church on them or they have some kind of edifice or some place to worship where a lot of Christians find it comfortable to go to church Sunday morning, let someone sing for them, let the lesson be taught, let everything be done for them, and they as a spectator come and enjoy, then they go home and they live their life the way they want. I'm sure there are none in this building that have that particular attitude. I never was a big poker player. I worked on a job where at break and lunchtime, the guys would all come around the table and they would ante in, and that ante is simply the minimum that you need to be a part of that particular game. But I would watch them sometimes as pots would grow, and that's where the money begins to accumulate. And then there would be times when they were playing that one or two of the players would take all of his pot, all the money he had, and he would push it, and he would bet it all, all or nothing. That's what being committed is all about, making a decision to be all or nothing. I do not know for a fact, but I have been told, and Chris can probably confirm this, that when that L-1011 gets on that runway and it gains up speed and it gets ready to take off, there is a moment there or there is a microsecond there when the pilot has got to make a decision that he's going to take that plane off the runway. And Chris, I've been told that they talk to the control tower and they make the statement that says, I'm committed. I'm committed. I hope that's the right story. If you nod your head, yes, even though that's not the right story, we can go on with the next point of this. Uh, <laughs> but I am committed. You know, I got to reflecting yesterday as I went to climb a tree that uh, Angel put the cleats in the tree for me. And, you know, starting off, he, he did real well. It was an average step that I could climb. But then it was obvious the closer he got to the top, the more tired he got. It's pretty hard holding on the tree with one arm and then screwing in a, a peg with the other arm. It gets a little rough. So those last few steps weren't like two foot apart. They were like six foot apart. And so I was holding on to one, and I was reaching out to the other, but I didn't want to let go of the one because I was unsure of the next one. Can anybody relate to, you know, the, like, like climbing a ladder? You, you keep your weight 
on the back step because you know that's safe and you're not sure about the next step. I don't know if any of you can relate to that, but when I was very young, 19 or 20 years of age, I had a, I had a job cutting down trees. And I remember that we would, we would climb these trees and that we would tie ourselves off the tree. And I remember one particular tree I climbed, I, I found a nest of baby crows. And so I cut the limb the crows was in and they, they bit the dust. Then all of a sudden, there are about 15 or 20 male, uh, ferocious, uh, manding crows that proceeded, per, that proceeded to try to kill me as I was holding onto that tree. And I remember holding on with one arm and having the chainsaw with the other. And I remember I was chasing the crows away. And I got to thinking, I could probably die cutting down this tree. I could probably lose my life. So many times that we get involved in things that we don't realize that what it's going to cost is everything. But aren't you glad that God allows us to be tested and tried, that before he puts us in the boxing ring with the champion, that he's given us the opportunity to become what God has called us to be? Most of you could not relate to this, but there were times in, in television and times in radio when all of a sudden you would hear a, you would hear a dial tone. It would go, and then the guy would come on and say, uh, for the next 90 seconds, we're testing the emergency broadcasting system. There is no danger. There's no, this is just a test. How many cannot relate to that? You've never heard that. Christine, have you heard that before? This is just a test? You haven't heard? Okay, lift your hand up then. If you have not, oh, good, good. So the, the younger generation cannot relate to that, that this is just being a test. But let me tell you something. Life as we know it is simply a test so that we can acquire a testimony. Do I have a witness in the building? We know that God tested Abraham. Scholars say that Abraham was tested 10 different ways, but I believe the test of all tests is when he told mama to go home and we took Isaac up to the mountain. He had the wood, he had the ability to make the fire, but he didn't have the sacrifice. And there he was obeying the Lord where God said, I want you to lay your Isaac upon the altar. Now, we know that God is not a barbarian. We know God is not a murderer. We know God is not in the process of taking children away from their parents. But Isaac had become Abraham's God. His whole life, 70, 80, 90 years of age, all he really wanted was a son. Even compromised and got a son by another, by another mom, but it wasn't the same. And at the age of 100, Abraham has a son. And as that son began to grow up, that son became the very ideal of Abraham's existence. Although God had other things for Abraham to do. By the way, he goes on to have five more children that impact a generation. But God required for Abraham to take the thing that was the most important to him and lay it upon the altar. And I don't know if you've ever been in that particular place where you were required to take that which meant the most to you and you were required to give it back to God. I remember when Courtney was just a few weeks old and I handed her to the nurse that was taking her to the surgeon. I told the nurse, I said, I'm not giving this baby to you. I'm giving this baby to God. And when you're done with her, go bring her back and put her back in my arms. And that's exactly what God allowed to happen. Although the baby in the next bed, having pretty much the same surgery, six months old rather than a few weeks old. And we spent some time counseling with them and praying with them and comforting them. And their baby did not survive. And Sharon, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in ministry is go and try to comfort that family that my baby lived and their baby, their baby did not. But I didn't give that baby to a doctor. I didn't give that baby to an institution. God gave me that baby, so I gave that baby back to God. And now 26 years later, look what a good job that God has done with her. I must have, although I've done a lot of wrong things, I must have been a pretty good dad to raise two awesome kids and also the dog. The dog is a great dog, too, and I spend a lot of time with him. But there's something about all out. Several years ago, I was very young. I was probably about 20 years of age, and I had the opportunity to box with the Golden Gloves boxer. My dad was a boxer. That, that song that Elton John wrote about Saturday nights, all right for fighting, got to get a belly full of beer. Well, my dad didn't drink, but he fought. And it was in little old Payton, Oklahoma, just a little old tiny tiny place there right outside of Oklahoma City, every Saturday night they would go to town and they would pick the ones that they wanted to fight and that's what, and that's what they did for fun. That, that that's actually was their fun. That was their, that, that's what they enjoyed doing on the weekend. So when I was very young, Dad put gloves on me, taught me how to box, then told me, if you fight, I'm going to spank you. If you run from a fight, I'm going to give you a double spanking. 
And you know what? I, I learned as a, as a young kid growing up, don't ever let anybody hit your face. Therefore, dad will never know that you were in a fight and you don't get a spanking. But I thought I was a pretty good boxer. And so I put the gloves on this guy from Oregon. Uh, he was a golden gloves boxer. So he asked me, he said, he said, Hank, uh, how, how do you want to do this? You want to do it uh, soft, medium, or hard? I said, well, let's, let's, let's do it medium. Let's just kind of go medium. Well, medium simply meant that he could hit me 17 times per second. And, and I felt like my head was like a it just pow, pow, pow. And, and I, <laughs> I don't know why I told you that story, but it, it was good at the moment. But there are times, there are times when it is necessary for you to, to lay everything that you have on the altar and leave it there and see what God will do with it. I read an illustration that was entitled Burn the Ships, and most of you know the story of Hernan Cortez, that he went to the uh, island of Mexico, uh, the country of Mexico. He had 11 ships, about 300 soldiers, 11 horses, and a few laborers, and they went to a land that there were 5 million people, and most of you know that you know, 300 men against 5 million people, they probably are not going to overcome. However, Cortez told his men when they, when, they, when they landed the ships on the beach and they all got on the beach, Cortez told his men to go back to the ships and burn them to the ground. So there was no way of escape. They either went forward or, or they died there on the beach. And we know the story. They conquered Mexico. I wonder how many times God is asking us to burn our ships. How many times God is shutting the back doors. There's no way that we can go back to where it once was and that we can press on towards the new things that God has for us. Do I have a friend in the building at all? Elisha must have been praying, must have been seeking God, must have had the heart of God. But Elisha, when the mantle of Elijah fell upon Elisha, Elisha asked permission to kiss his parents goodbye and was given that permission. Elisha goes and takes the very thing that made him money, takes the very thing that was significant to him, and the Bible says he burns all of his plows. In other words, his business is now bankrupt. He has shut down every opportunity. He cannot go back. He kills the cows. He lets the city. They have a big feast, a big celebration. They kill the cows. They eat the cows. Then Elisha goes and becomes a servant, where at one time he was a very wealthy landowner. He's very wealthy, prosperous. Obviously, 12 oxen, he was a wealthy man, but he took everything that was important to him, gave it to God, and pursued the things of God. I wonder sometimes how many of us would be willing to risk it all to get it all. If you go with me to Luke 7 and 36, very, very powerful story of a young lady that was caught in adultery was probably a prostitute, and you know the story. Jesus told the accusers, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. The way I like to preach it is, I believe that Jesus' reference was to he that is without this sin. Let him cast the first stone. And then Jesus gets down his hands and knees and begins to write there in the sand, and the word says, the oldest from the youngest, as they look what Jesus had written on the sand, they dropped their rocks and split. That's California for they laid their stones down and departed. So here this young lady that, that Jesus has completely cast no sentence on, sends away her accusers, and then she he looks at her and says, where's your accusers? And, and she said, they're all, they're all gone. And the only one that really had the ability to accuse her and be able to accuse with Jesus. Jesus says, neither do I accuse thee. Go thy way and sin no more. And I believe, again, the reverence says, go thy way and do this sin no more. Well, we're coming to a place where there is a celebration. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. One of Lazarus' friends was a Pharisee. So this Pharisee throws a party. Now, most of you know that Pharisees were boring. Pharisees were judgmental. Pharisees were critical. It probably was not a very good party, but they made the mistake of inviting Jesus. That's, that'll preach, won't it? You might have a boring life until you invite Jesus to be a part of your life, and then it might not be so boring. Hello. But in Luke 7 and 36, let me, let me read, if I may, just for a moment. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. 
And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus said it meet in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed them with kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, spake within himself. Ever, anybody ever talk to yourself? Ever talk to yourself? Ever, ever form opinion or judgment without knowing all the details? This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for he is a sinner. And Jesus answering and said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. And he said, Master, say on. So here's a word of correction that Jesus is going to share with Simon. There was a certain creditor which had two doctors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? Well, you know what? That's, that's kind of an easy question for us to answer. Those, those of us that have lived our whole life for the glory of God, those of us that have never parted, we've never fallen astray, we've never done anything wrong, we're appreciative, but we really don't realize what God has done for us until we find ourselves in the gutter with no hope, with no future, with no dignity, with no destiny, with no legacy. And, and, and when the good Samaritan went to where the guy was beat up, the priest couldn't help him, the law couldn't help him, but only Jesus could help him. And aren't you glad that Jesus got down there where we live? He knew how to talk the talk. He had the street talk going on. He, he knew what to say. He knew, he knew when to say, when not to say. And when you have been in the gutter and you've been resurrected out of the gutter and a fatted calf has been killed and a ring's been put on your hand and a robe on your back and shoes on your feet and you're given inheritance and you're given a part and your life now simply has meaning, we are prob- those of us that can relate to that are probably going to love him more than those that, that never messed up. They never failed. They never, they, they've always lived a good life. I don't know that living a good life is trying not to do wrong or living a good life is going after God with gusto. An, an, an attitude or expression of, 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 of laying it all in. Another translation of the story makes a statement that this young lady, and we, and we know that this young lady may have been the Mary that Jesus loved, Mary and Martha's house. What is so crazy the world, no matter how, how long we've been clean, how long we've been healthy, how long we've been whole, the world will still point its finger at us and say, he, he was a drug addict, she got an abortion, they're divorced, they're bankrupt, they did this, they did that. Aren't you glad that when you come to Christ, old things are passed away, all things are become new, and, and we might be a sinner saved by grace, that song says, that saved a wretch like me. But let me tell you what this wretch did, this old, ugly-looking, nasty-smelling caterpillar did. This caterpillar made a decision to begin to include myself with the things of God and begin to weave the, the word of God around me. And in that cocoon, when God had me in a season of hiding, I was fasting and praying. God was doing a work. And on that moment of moments, when that cocoon burst open, that, that beautiful butterfly to, to emerge, can anybody relate that this is my story? This is my song praising my Savior all the day long. Why? Because he walked with me. He talks with me. He tells me I am his own. And the joy we share, and help me with the words, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other can ever know. What a joy to be a part of the family of God. What a joy to be redeemed, saved, sanctified, and filled with heaven's sweet Holy Ghost. We used to sing a song when we were kids, if you're saved and you know it, say Amen. Well, we kids turned the word around and said, if you're saved and you know it, tell your face. Some of you, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to wait till next year and about September, I'm going to go to dad's persimmon tree and I'm going to pick about a hundred green persimmons and then I'm going to give you one and I'm going to let you bite into it because that's pretty much the face that you see when you preach on Sunday morning. If you're saved and you know it, tell your face. If you brushed your teeth before you came to church and you know there's nothing on your, just turn to somebody, give them that pepsodent smile, that, that Colgate smile, and that evident smile and say, I'm about to implode. Go ahead. And I'm going to explode all over you. And the joy of the Lord is going to follow, fall on you. And you're going to realize what a joy it is to be a part 
of the family of God. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise if you, if you don't mind. The city that Elisha came from meant the meadow of dancing. What a cool place. What a lovely ring to it. Lovely. Obviously, he was wealthy. Obviously, he had all the toys, had all the stuff, was well known in the city. But when Elijah put the, the, the mantle on him, something changed. I like to think that when we put on that garment of praise and we trade it for the spirit of heaviness, I like, the, I like to think that things change in our life and all of a sudden we realize that we are full of possibility. You are, you are a wine vat that, that's pressed, that has all kinds of possibility. And when that garment, that, that spirit of heaviness leaves and we put on the garment of praise, as we begin to connect with him, we feel like that he comes to where, we're, where we are. And then we're awed, we're honored that God would acknowledge. I mean, I cannot tell you how many billions of birds are singing today for the glory of God. I cannot tell you on the seven different oceans how many waves are going to crash in the next hour for the glory of the God. I cannot tell you as all of nature, as the stars begin to declare God's glory, as all of creation begins to worship and praise God, I am awed to think that the God, the creator of the ends of the earth, that fainteth not, neither is weary, and there's no searching of his understanding, would come down on this Sunday morning at 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock and join us and embrace us with his presence. That is almost too incredible to believe. But Elisha saw something in that mantle that he wanted that was more important than a business. It was more important than a job. It was more important than security. It was more important than family. The word says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But something changed the life of Elisha when that mantle touched his shoulder. And may I say what I wrote in my notes earlier this morning, Elisha risked it all to get it all. He risked it all to get it all. See, believing that salvation is 99% grace and 1% works, if we're not careful, we'll get all caught up in works and then we begin to judge others by the way we think they are or aren't producing in the kingdom of God. And it's never been about that. It's never, when Jesus told Peter what his destiny was gonna be, Peter looked over at John and said, well, what about John? And Peter said, and Jesus said, Peter, don't worry about John, worry about Peter. And so many times we're so quick to be negative or criticize someone else. And usually I've learned that when someone's negative and critical, it's to take the focus over what they're not doing that they're supposed to be doing and all the talents and bills they have that just seem to get lost. You know, when you're born, they put a date on your epitaph. And when you die, they put a date on your epitaph, and then they put a slash in, there, in, the, in the middle there. I believe so many people are dying prematurely because they're not pursuing what God has for them, what God wants them to do, and what God wants them to be. Do I have an amen in this building? We have another amen in this building. Thank you. In the movie, it wasn't really all that great of a movie, but I like Matt Damon. I like the Bourne. I like all of that. So I thought maybe it'd be that kind of movie. So I rented We Bought a Zoo. That, uh, that movie is based on a true story. Uh, a British writer, Will, Will something. I remember Matt Damon, the guy that played him. I remember the guy that actually did it. But this guy really did buy this zoo that was dilapidated. It was, it was run down. The animals have a tough time. There was disease. It was a mess. He spent a chunk of change, turned everything around, and, and, and made it to a very healthy zoo. But in that movie, there was a statement that Matt Damon made when he was asked, when he was asked, why in the world would you take your life savings? Why would you take all the money you'd accumulated, all the investment power you had? Why would you invest it in a zoo? And this was the statement he made. Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. And when I think about 20 seconds, I think about Pastor Rhonda walking down that aisle of North Cleveland Church of God from the lobby to the, to the altar. That 20 seconds of insane courage that she decided, 
for the second time. Hello. I mean, you get me once, it's your bad, but you get me twice, it's my bad. Hello. That 20 seconds she walked, she, she didn't walk, she floated. She glided down the, she glided down the altar there. And I think about that 20-second walk that, I don't remember what movie it was, is where the runaway bride, I think it was, that she started down the altar, but it didn't make it. Remember, she turned and ran off. And I, and I think about the commitments we made to our husband, the commitments we made to our wife, that 20 seconds of insane courage, when all around us we see marriages crashing and burning, all around us we see the results of children being re- raised by, by stepdads. And that's not, a, that's not a bad thing, but there's usually drama there. There's usually some stuff there. And you think about the commitment you made to that husband, that commitment, that 20 seconds of insane courage that changed your life. When I think about insane courage, when I think about 20 seconds, I think about that 20 seconds that Peter got out of the boat and actually walked on the water. I mean, what a gutsy, what a gutsy thing to do. I mean, I don't know if he'd been taken to testosterone. I don't know what was going on that day. But for him to get out of the boat in the middle of a, it wouldn't be so bad if the water was like glass, but it wasn't. It was a storm. And the midst of a storm, he gets out that 20 seconds that he walks on the water. And I'm sure those that didn't have the guts to get out of the boat made fun of him because he sank, but, it, but he walked. Hello, he did it. And you don't see anybody else in the history of the world doing that. When I think about 20 seconds of insane courage, I think about David. When he said to Goliath, thou comest with me with a sword and a spear and a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied, this day will I deliver thee, and I will take thine head from thee, and I will give thy body to the, and thy carcass to the host of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. It takes about 20 seconds to say that. What a gutsy thing for a 16-year-old boy armed with a drugstore slingshot, hello, to approach a man 9 to 13 foot that his spear probably weighed more than this teenage boy. What a gutsy thing to say, listen, I'm not waiting for you to bring it on. I'm bringing it to you. He wasn't playing it safe by doing all the right things. He was playing it dangerous by committing everything. Does that not, does that not touch anybody in this building that, that there, there's a problem are you part of the problem? Are you the problem solver? David was told he was too young. Don't let anybody tell you you're not qualified because the Bible is full of people that were not qualified. Don't ever let anybody tell you you're not qualified. David was the baby of the family. We're not even sure that David was a legitimate child. We know that when the king, when, the, when Samuel came to uh, or anoint the sons, they didn't call for David. How in the world they forgot about him. But when, when, when David was anointed king, you know what he did? He went right back to work because there was a window that he knew that God was going to prove faithful. It was a 13-year journey before David actually sat upon the throne and was king, but there was a lot of stuff in there between. But when this little teenage boy sees this, and you know, I don't remember what movie it was. I think it was Brad Pitt where he was playing the Achilles, and he, and he took on this monster, this great big one-eyed monster. Do you remember, the, do you remember that particular movie where it was? Troy, and, and you know what? You look at this great, big, nasty, ugly-looking, evil monster, and you say, how in the world are you going to take this monster down? He was about four foot taller than Brad Pitt. But Brad Pitt ran and jumped on his knee and took the, 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 the daggers and stabbed him in the throat. And I said, listen, if I ever got to take on a giant, that's what I'll do. I'll just run at him and stab him in the throat. And sometimes your attitude has got to be, there are giants in your life. There are things in your life that are trying to blaspheme and curse and degrade and tear down. And sometimes the only way to deal with the problem is to just deal with the problem. Am I helping anybody in the building? Sometimes there's things you've got to charge head on because, and you can't wait for it to come to you. You've got to charge it. Jonathan told his armor bearer, we'll go up. And if they come to us, that means God's with us and he will give us this battle. And sometimes we've got to go to where the enemy's at and say, you've trespassed long enough you violated long enough. You've stolen long enough. You discouraged me long enough. You brought more doubt, more fear, no confusion. I am standing on the word of God that he sent his word. His word healed me. I'm whole. I'm healthy. I'm ready to take on the storms of my life, the battles of my life, because I've come to learn that weeping endures for a season, but joy comes in the morning. There's 20 seconds of courage. It took about 20 seconds for Ruth to tell Naomi. Whether thou go, I will go. Whether thou lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people, and your God 
will be my God. What a statement to leave the land of her family and to go to unknown place called Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, in the land of Judah, which means the place of praise. I mean, how scary it must have been for this girl to leave her mom, her dad, her family, go someplace that she'd never been kosher, didn't know what the word meant, but went, began to dwell among, began to reap there, and then God brought Boaz into her life. I mean, what a gutsy thing for her to say, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. I can't help but think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the king told them, if you don't bow, you will burn. And one of the, one of the three looked at, at the king and said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, which means crackpot, a crackpot, a base that was cracked. Oh, crackpot, maybe you will and maybe you won't. But our God who we serve will deliver us from the fiery furnace. Nevertheless, we are not going to bow we're not going to bend, and we have to burn, so be it. What a gutsy statement for this guy to make to a king where the, where the, where the furnace had been heated seven times hotter than it ever been. The guys that went to open the door, the blast was so horrific, they died on the spot. And for this young man to say, you know what? We trust in God, not because it's on our money, but because we have a personal relationship with the king of glory, and we trust that if he doesn't deliver us out of this, then he will deliver us through this. So sometimes God will snatch you before the problem, and then sometimes God will walk all the way through the problem with you, and you come out stronger, tougher, more resilient, more dependable on the things and the power and the presence of God. That should give the Lord a hand up of praise us out. When I think about Elijah, when I think about the ability to call down fire. I mean, how cool a toy would that be? I mean, you could, you could, you could just zap. I mean, you could just, you know, just, just, just call down fire from heaven. And he gave the enemy the chance to go first. And usually the, the, the first one in the woods, the first one in the bass boat, the first one in the tree stand, usually harvest something. But he gave the prophets of Baal first opportunity. They screamed, they cried, they cut themselves all day long. And then Elijah prays a 57-word prayer. I don't know how many, how many words it is in the Hebrew language, but in the King James Version, which I believe is sacred and holy, and, and I stick to that, that I believe that these 57-word prayer, he called down fire from heaven, and that's what I call 20 seconds of insane courage. I mean, how much faith have you got to have in God that you would call down fire from heaven? But you know why he did it? Because God told him to. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And when God gives you a dream, a thought, or an idea, if God be for us, who can be against us? I saw, I saw a sticker said that said, where there's a will, there's a way. And then I saw another bumper sticker that said, where there's a will, there's a win. When the, when the quarterback yesterday gave that football to that fullback, the Alabama, it seemed like every time he carried that ball, I don't want to hurt Tennessee's feelings, and if you're listening to my podcast, don't throw me on the bus. But every time he gave that little fullback the ball, he blew, he charged those guys. You know what? He weighed 210 pounds. The guys on the other side of the field were 3, 350, 365, and he, and he charged them like a bumblebee would charge an eagle. And with, with no thought to any injury, with no thought to himself, simply the fact he had to get the, the ball from point A to point B, that was his goal. He went after it. And I think yesterday he did a pretty good job. When I think about that 20 seconds of insane courage, I think about when Daniel was praying, knowing that praying was going to get him arrested and knowing that praying was going to put him in the, in the den of lions. And I don't know if you know a whole lot about lions or a whole lot about tigers, but you know what? They usually, when they get hungry, they usually, they usually eat. And they like to kill. They like fresh blood. They drag it off. And you know what? For Daniel to be surrounded by lions, I mean, Somebody may have accidentally fed the lions the day before. Somebody, you know, maybe absurd got too close to feet and, and he fell in and they ate him. What, whatever, whatever the case may be, Daniel fell asleep with his head resting on a lion's mane. God turned a lion's mane into a pillow for a prophet. But that next morning, the king could not wait to the very crack of daybreak so that the sentence was canceled. And he ran down to that dungeon. He said, Daniel, has your God's, and Daniel, 20 seconds of insane courage, said, O king, my God has delivered me from the mouth of the lion. And Daniel went on and outlived three kings, not just that king. He outlived two more kings because of God's faithfulness, because of that 20 seconds of insane courage. When I think of, when I think of 20 seconds of insane courage, I think about this little lady who really didn't belong, I don't know that she was invited, but she showed up. I like to call her a party crasher. Hannah, she probably did not have a guest of honor seat. She probably did not have 
anybody that wanted her there. And I don't know, I don't know what, she, what went through her mind. Maybe when she saw Jesus, she, she noticed that his feet had not been washed. She noticed that he had not been anointed from the day's journey. We now have deodorant, we have cologne, we have perfume. But in those days, they didn't really have a whole lot of anything. Can you imagine what a scary place that would be without deodorant? But, but, but when she entered that banquet table, who, who knows what the enemy tried to tell her? Who knows how the enemy tried to hold her back? But she took one of two things. First of all, she took what represented her ability to be seductive. She took what represented her past. She took what represented that window of being a prostitute. And she also took that which represented her life savings. Everything she owned was in that perfume. Everything that, everything that she believed in was in that, that thing of perfume. But she didn't just take the lid off and pour it. The Bible says she broke it. And I think of that 20 seconds of insane courage that without permission, without an escort, she comes to the feet of Jesus. She washes them with her tears, dries them with her hair, and then takes that alabaster box and breaks it. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said to the person giving the banquet, they'll forget about you. It won't be very long before you won't ever be mentioned. But for hundreds of years from this day forward, what this woman has, de has done will be spoken of. And here we are 2,000 years later bragging on this girl that took the alabaster box, not just a sign of worship, but a sign of preparing him for burial. When you went into the, when you were in the tomb after you, were, after you died, there were the spices put in there with you. She was preparing him for his greatest day upon the face of the earth, and that was to take away the sting of death, to take away the victory of the grave, to snatch those keys back, to resurrect, to, to appear before his disciples and tell them the same power that I have now, you go in my name. You cast out devils. You heal the sick. You win the lost at any cost. And went back to heaven, sat down, and now gives us that power to follow up the promises that he made to us on that day. And I, I think about that, that 20 seconds that mentally she thought, now, should I do this? Will I be thrown out? Will I be embarrassed? Is this a stupid thing to do? But she did it. And she broke the box and she laid it at his feet. My notes here say, for what it's worth, it's impossible to start over. But it's not impossible to start again. The secret to finishing the race is starting the race. Obviously, when Nicodemus asked Jesus to be born again, do I go back into my mother's womb, which was impossible. We all know that. And Jesus said, no, the birth I'm talking about is a spiritual birth. But when you come to Christ, you come as a baby. The word says, desiring the sincere milk of the word. And then as you grow, as you mature, you transform from baby to child to son to disciple as, as a part of the kingdom of God. When I think about not starting over, but I think about starting again, I'll reflect and determine that in order for you to get a black belt in karate, you first had to get a white belt. Do I have a witness in the building? Before you can become a German carpenter or German plumber, you first have to go through an apprentice program. Can I get a witness in the building? And before you became a doctor, you had to graduate from kindergarten. So there's a place where you start and there's a road that you pursue and there's a goal, a finish line that you desire to cross. And I thought about to be a guitarist like Peter Frampton or Jimmy Page or Rick Derringer or Chris Vernon, you don't start out just a monster on the guitar. I, I read an uh, editorial on Eddie Van Halen. And when Ada Van Halen was a kid, all the other kids were playing ball. They were goofing around. They were going out on dates. They were doing stuff. Eddie Van Halen would spend hour upon hour upon hour in his home, sitting on his bed, just playing scales. That's all that he would do. So in order for you to become great, you've got to start somewhere, pursue what God has for you, and know that he is going to make it come to pass. The promises of God are yea and amen. When Peter asked Jesus what it would cost, What's it going to cost to follow you? What's it, going to, what's it going to cost? A lot of us fail to take the time to count the cost. We want the end result, but we don't pay the price. We want joy without sacrifice. 
We want character without suffering. We want gain without pain. One of the big things that athletes will tell you, no pain, no gain. If you don't work those muscles, stretch those muscles, get those muscles to a place where blood flows in and begins to grow and increase, then you will not gain. A lot of us want a testimony without the test. A lot of us want it all without going all out for it. I love that. We want it all, but we're afraid to go all out for it. Most of you know I ran varsity track two years of high school, and I remember in a lot of races, I would watch athletes that if they thought they were losing or they thought that they were not going to win, they would fake a sprain or they would fake a hurt. Uh, I ran a, you kill it? Well, whosoever means whosoever. So when you say whosoever, I guess we're going to have every, the brighter the light, the more bugs. Your dad taught me that several years ago when he came, when he came to Cleveland. And the point I was making was when I ran varsity track, because I ran a 440, which is one, which is one leg of the track, I was the guy that held the baton on the, on the, on the race called the mile. The mile is four laps with four different runners. The gun goes off. One guy sprints around one time, hands the baton. Sometimes they drop the baton. Sometimes they lose the baton. I mean, all kinds of weird things can go when the baton is passed to you. And then the second guy will give it to the third guy. And the third guy would give it to the fourth guy. And I was the fourth guy. And I was always the scapegoat because everybody blamed the last guy, no matter where they were in the race, when he did not win. And there was a young lady by the name of Mona Hendricks that for some reason, head cheerleader, she came to all the games and she would cheer. And she would say my name, go, Henry, go. I hated that name, but I loved it when Mona said it. And there were, there were times when they would hand me, Sharon, they would hand me the baton. And it was like the, the, the guy, the last guy is like as far to that wall. But I wanted to impress Mona and I wanted to hear my name, go, Henry, go. And then I would turn it on a little, I probably weighed about 120 pounds soaking wet, but I was a wire little dude and boy, could I run. And I remember I run and you, I, I, I cannot remember, I'm sure we lost. I cannot ever remember losing the mile relay because I made up my mind that this is only going to hurt for a minute. When I ran the two miles, somewhere around the sixth or seventh lap, it was like your lungs are literally ready to explode. There's a, it's screaming, it hurts, it's painful, you're sucking air. But then all of a sudden there's a touch. It's something to do with the testosterone that flushes your body. It's called your second wind. And all of a sudden there on the last lap, I felt like I was running the first lap and, and, and you would finish strong because you had that ability to get your second win. But you never got your second win until you laid it all on the line, went after it as, as far and as fast as you could. And that's what I believe. I believe that if we'll make the effort to do what God's called us to do. I believe he'll stay with us through the journey and he that endureth to the end. I believe the same shall be saved, but I believe we press towards the mark. We, we, we rush towards that, trusting and depending upon when we cannot do it in our own strength, then we depend on his strength. Do I have a witness in the building that can relate? When I think about what Peter asked Jesus, what's it gonna cost me? Jesus said, Peter, it's gonna cost you everything. Could have cost you everything. They're going to hate you. They're going to cuss you. They're going to they're going to murder you. They're going to murder your children. They're going to murder your wife. I mean, it's all it's all or nothing. It's all in. It's not just an ante. See, the minimum is going to church and tithing. The minister standing when they stand, sing when they sing, listen when they listen. That's the ante. That's that's that that's the minimum we can do. But I think that a lot of us have been playing safe for way too long. I think God wants us to get out of the safety of the nest. I remember when we played uh, basketball, I played basketball in high school, and I remember that when the game really, really got tight, that the coach would say, and he would call us and he would say, okay, full court press. And, and you're almost finished with the game. You're either winning by a few points or losing by a few points, and then you go to full court press. Half court press was you waited for the offense to come into your territory, then you tried to stop them from making a basket. But full court press was when they brought the ball onto your backcourt, then, you then you would race and you would try to take the ball, steal the ball, get the ball away. That's called a full court, full court press. Say that fast three times, full court press. I believe a lot of us have enjoyed playing defense, that when the enemy came, we prayed, we saw solutions, we saw favor, we saw blessing. But I think that's only half of what a good warrior does. 
I believe we're fighting the fight. And, and you know what? I don't know that we win every single battle, but we come out with scars that convince us that we survived. We may not have won, but we survived the battle. And we learn more today, hopefully, than we knew yesterday. So when the next battle comes, we're a little bit wiser and a little bit smarter. Do I have a witness in the building? This rich young ruler in Luke 18 and 18, if you'll, if you'll trust me that it says this, this rich young ruler, very wealthy young man, comes to Jesus and calls him good, calls him master. Jesus said, no man is good except, except, except the Father. So what Jesus was saying, if you're calling me good, then you've got to acknowledge me as Lord. If you're calling me good, you've got to acknowledge me as the Lord of your life. So this young man came to Jesus calling him Lord, calling him good, and said, what must I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus mentions four of the commandments. And the four he mentioned are pretty much the easiest to keep. Don't kill anybody. Don't steal. Honor your mom and dad. And I forgot what the fourth one was. But they were all, they were all pretty easy commandments. I mean, how many murders we have? You know, maybe I shouldn't ask that question. Don't lift your hand, but because I was in one place, I said, how many convicted? And we had several that had killed people. Anyway, I mean, I mean how, how, many, how many of us trash our parents? How many of us steal from Cook's food store? I mean, how, how many of us cuss God? I mean, I mean, we can pretty much keep most of the commandments pretty good and, 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 and abide. But Jesus was telling this rich young man, if you really want the life that I have for you, there's one area of your life that's out of order. And the rich young ruler said, do I need to pray more? Do I need to read my Bible more? Do I, what, what do I need to do more? He said, your money has become your God. Sell what you have, give the poor, and come follow me. And the word says in Luke 18 and 23 that he went away not sorrowful, very sorrowful, for he was very wealthy. Job taught us a long time ago, naked I came into this world, and naked will I leave. The clothes they put on my body and lay in that coffin, those clothes would deteriorate, and they will rot and I'll leave this place the very way I came in with absolutely nothing but my skin. What a thought. There's nothing we can take with us, and God gives us stuff to make a difference in other people's lives. I'm not saying this young man was not a tither. I'm not saying he was not a giver, but his money was more important than his walk with Christ. And the Bible says he went away very sorrowful. Why? Because, Tiffany, for him to get what he wanted, it was going to cost him everything. If you'll go with me to Mark, I would like for you to see this personally on your own. Matthew, Mark 14 and 51. All four of the Gospels talk about the arrest in the garden, talk about the crucifixion of Christ, talk about the denial of Peter, all four Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four tell of that. But in Mark 14 and verse 51 is just one, two little scriptures that's not found in any other part of the, of the, the, the Gospels. They've come to Jesus. Peter has cut the guy's ear off. Jesus has healed the ear. All the disciples have abandoned him. They're all gone. Everybody say, they're all gone. All, all the disciples that we know of are gone. But then notice verse 51. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man, the young men, the soldiers laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled away them from them naked. Now, this is my opinion. There's probably no way to back it up theoretically or, or, or theologically. There's no way to back it up. But I believe that when all of the disciples fled, I believe that this young ruler went and sold everything he had. And before Jesus went to the cross, he came to Jesus and let him know, I have obeyed the commandment. Now, everybody wants a happily ever after, so I'm giving you a happily ever after. He, everything that he had could not purchase what he wanted. Think about this just for a moment. Hypothetically, you have, you have the desire 
to be Joyce Meyer's personal armor bearer? That's probably not going to happen. You have the desire to be T.D. Jakes, the guy that carries his Bible for him and the big black man that, that protects him in case idiots come and try to get his autograph or something. That's probably not going to happen. You might have the desire to fly Kenneth Copeland's plane unless you're Phil Driscoll. That's probably not going to happen. This young man was given the opportunity to hang with Jesus. Was given the opportunity to witness miracles, not just witness them, but through development and discipleship to do them in the name of Jesus. There is no price tag, I don't believe me, you can put on that. There's no amount of money, there's no mentorship that you would pay enough money that you would be able to hang with Jesus for three years of his life. How cool, how cool would that have been? And this story is early in Mark when Jesus just first started his ministry. So he could have been right there with Jesus. He could have been that armor bearer. He could have been that cup bearer. He could have been that, he could have been that disciple. But there was something more important in his life, and that was his money. And I wonder sometimes, what are some of the things that we're holding back on that we don't commit to God? Whether it's our time, whether it's our talent, whether it's our prayer, whether it's devotion, whether it's our money, what's holding you back? In conclusion this morning, as we talk about double or nothing, as we talk about, as we talk about a sacrifice, as we talk about a commitment, as we talk about all in, being all in for Christ, there are four levels of commitment that we pursue. The first level right now that it seems like the majority of churches that are on the cutting edge, these churches pr produce and present what's called a seeker-friendly environment. I think the first level of commitment that we, that, we, that we make to God is that we come and see. We just come and check it out. We come, do we like the music? Do we like the worship? Do we like the ministry of the church? Do we like the teaching? Do we like the backdrop? Do we like this just... Let's just check it out. And a lot of churches today have about a 28-minute window. Pastor Rhonda goes to churches where she has 28 minutes to preach and seven minutes to do the altar call. That's it. That's it. And, that, and that's the window. And, and because they televise it, there's a clock on the, on, the, on the podium there, and she has to stay within the kind, confines of that clock. Now, I went to the very same church and disregarded the clock, and they never had me back. Same church. So there's a there's a there's a... There's a move right now that's trying to get people to come to church and like it, see what they like, whether it's the lights, whether it's the overhead screens, whether it's the, the, the Listerine in the bathroom. All kinds of little things are set up to get us to like what we see, to see, and, and, and to come and check it out. The second level is to come and follow. You've seen what you like. A, commit, a commitment's going forth. You give your heart to God. You, just, you decide to read your Bible and pray. To learn, you decide to be a disciple. The third, the third level is where a lot of us have a, have a difficulty separating the congregation from the multitude, is to come and follow. It's to come and follow. It's easy to go and check it out. It's easy to bring your Bible, sing the songs, and say, I'm a Christian, and I'm, and I'm, I'm doing any evil. I've, I've, let, I've laid all that down. But it's not so easy to come and surrender. And most of us, if we've seen any movie concerning surrender, is when you're asked to surrender, you're asked to lay down your weapons and throw your hands up. And that is a sign of submission. I think that's also a sign of unprejudiced worship. I think it's a surrender that says, God, I'm not here because I need you. I'm not here because I'm in trouble. I'm not here because I desperately need a breakthrough or I need a financial miracle. I'm here because I want to be here. I'm here because I love to worship you. I love to praise you. I love to hang around your people. I love what you're doing in my life. And that's the surrender part. That's the, that's the laying it on, on the line. And then the last place of commitment, I believe, is that you take a healthy boy duck and a healthy girl duck, which is called, I know it's called a drake and a hen. Hello. But you take two healthy sheep, you take a ram and a ewe, and you let them hang out, they're going to produce. Your life, your verbiage, your personality, your character should be so addictive. There should be so much of God that flows through that wherever you go, people see you, and automatically they become jealous. That's okay. 
They see your life. They see, they see the standard you live. They see the verbiage that comes out of your mouth. They see what you do laugh at and you don't laugh at. And when they see that, there's something in their life that's missing, and you have seemed to have found it. I've been, I've been in environments where, and it's usually out fishing or hunting or doing something with the guys. I've been in an environment where I've had people ask me, what, 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 what are you taking? You on acid? You got LSD? You got some peyote going on? What's, what's, why are you so happy? Why are you? I'm not always happy. You should see me before coffee. There's nothing happy about that moment. But there should, be, there should be such a joy that flows out of you and such a glory that flows out of you that people want to know what God you serve. They want to know where you're serving God, and they want to know how they can be involved. And I guess when we talk about double or nothing, we know that all of our sins will nail to the cross. They were washed by the blood of Jesus. They have been forgiven. And now we've been joint heirs with Christ. All that God has has been given to us. All that we have has been given to God. And what a cool, incredible phenomenal trait. One out of three people.